0: Today on Permaculture Perspectives I'm going to read to you from several different books, three different books tying together a theme here of landscapes, how they've changed and in particular building up to a topic that I'll be doing in a future podcast here on the foundations of why it is so problematic, misguided and simply a waste of time to talk about plants in terms like exotic and invasive and we'll look at the background today behind transforming landscapes and in particular the transforming landscape of North America where we'll be exploring the last hundred years and it's changing fabric. So first, some words of wisdom about land patterns in North America that I often look to from this author. His name is Mark Kurlansky. Kurlansky wrote some books that are more widely circulated than the one I'm going to read from. Those are topics like cod and salt. And one of my favorites to point you towards called The Big Oyster, where he's looking into the history of Manhattan over the last hundred and fifty years fascinating read, The Big Oyster, Mark Kurlansky. This book that I'm reading from is called The Food of a Younger Land by Mark Kurlansky. And I'm going to read to you from the introduction where he's setting it up because really this book is about a project that I really didn't even know existed uh, that was part of the WPA program that was created by Franklin Delano Roosevelt in order to respond to the depression and keep Americans doing something that was beneficial rather than detrimental through something that today would be largely called what I jokingly like to refer to as a commie-pinko plot. Uh, At a time in the country where Kurlansky makes it very clear that in fact the Communist Party and the leftist intelligentsia as he calls them were so robust that they were turning down membership applications this is in 1932 so we're going to read a section from his introduction to the food of a younger landmark Kurlansky. America was starting to build highways sell farms to build suburbs and industrialize the production of food The ways of pre-war America were rapidly vanishing. The war industries that brought America out of the depression had changed the landscape. I grew up in a blue-collar community on the edge of Hartford, where people worked in factories and crowded into neighborhood housing. It in no way resembled the description of it in the 1938 WPA guide for Connecticut the first of the guides after which the rest were modeled the guide characterizes the crowded fast-growing industrial area i knew as an quote attractive verdant setting end quote from 1940 to 1950 the population of the united states increased by 20 million to 151 million and americans became far more affluent in that same decade, the gross national product of the United States nearly tripled. The average yearly expenditures of an American also nearly tripled. But despite the growth in the economy, the value of exports in 1950 was only a third of what it had been in 1940. The country was changing from an export based economy to a consumer based one. By 1950, The military-industrial complex that Eisenhower would warn about in his 1961 farewell address had already firmly taken root. In 1950, government-military spending was seven times as much as it had been in 1940. There were twice as many cars on the roads. America was becoming a less family-centered society, which was having an enormous impact on the way Americans ate. In 1940, there were 264 divorces for every thousand people. By 1950, the divorce rate had risen to 385 per thousand. America was becoming much more multicultural. From 1935 to 1940, the WPA years, 308,000 immigrants were officially admitted to the United States. After the war, from 1945 to 1950, 864,000 were taken in and in the next five years another million would be admitted. But the most striking difference of all was that in 1940 America had rivers on both coasts teeming with salmon abalone steak was a basic dish in San Francisco. The New England fisheries were booming with cod and halibut. Maple trees covered the northeast and syruping time was as certain as a calendar. And flying squirrels still leapt from conifer to hardwood in the uncut forests of Appalachia. All of this has changed. It is terrifying to see how much we have lost in only 70 years. So that was the excerpt, Cheery, I wanted to share with you from there. Adjusting our background music here. This is uh, White Hills with Nod, one of my favorite bands from the UK, J. And here we go. You know, Kurlansky, what is he saying there? Talking about this rate of transformation. A key theme in our permaculture perspective is this focus of Bill Mollison on what the ethic arises from in permaculture this ethic we need to care for the earth we need to care for each other we need to share we need to redistribute we need to give away excess when we have abundance these values of caring and healing and sharing are emerging from his recognition as one of the founders and leaders in this discipline called permaculture Bill Mollison is giving us a a guiding light of viewpoint where he is saying industrial technology has put tools into the hands of human beings that they lack the ability to ethically use in a way that's responsible for its capacity to irreparably destroy landscapes and render vast areas of the planet uninhabitable for future generations. This is the Promethean power that nuclear technology and petroleum and coal powered technology put into the hands of the naked ape as they emerged from the equatorial rain belt and began to harness fire in its many ancient and potent forms that were available and when you look at the travesty of uranium tailings left on Indian reservations in the southwest of the United States here and realize as well how many of the sacred lands that we forced many of the Indian tribes out to on the West Coast were then stolen from them again and contaminated irreparably with radioactive isotopes that will be toxic for 10,000 years minimum and are just there in huge piles outside of the entrances to these mines. And what Bill Mollison is saying, this has created a legacy where we have to just first begin to get out of a hole by stopping digging and then i'm sure i could have said that more simply just get out of the hole just stop digging and then realize that the key thing to do is to get industrialism and get nuclear technologies out of our lives and bring nature in and heal the earth heal ourselves and create true abundance and what we're seeing is that in fact these landscapes where we live today in for instance where I'm residing here in New York State in the Northeastern United States New England these places have been so impacted that we can also begin to realize that it's been such a short amount of time that's led to the sparseness of these ecosystems and in a similarly short amount of time. We can turn that around and bring them back and create, once again, the kind of places that have cod and halibut and uncut forests for our children to inherit. And that is our opportunity here on Earth, is to participate in the real healing potency of this planet. Okay, so those are some of my thoughts about the excerpt I read to you from The Food of a Younger Lamb by Mark Kurlansky. Now, I wanted to read to you another excerpt to give you a sense of this this framework that I want you to appreciate that I'm coming from of how much the Earth is a very dynamic and changing phenomenon. And my purpose of saying, let's be good students of history, is to share with you and to Give us the ability to put together a picture of the past where we can begin to empirically emerge our possibilities for the future to create real health and real wealth for ourselves. The wealth of a good life, easy living, because most of what it is that we depend upon is coming from near at hand and is something that nature is providing. Now here, this book, these things really recently I've gotten particularly inspired and been bitten by the bug of nut trees which I used to make a little bit of fun of and say you know hey acorns aren't gonna save the world and I still often I would agree acorns might be a bit of a hard sell for being the primary one that I would jump up and down for and think people are gonna get really excited about so what I will say gave me the bug in the nut world is the things like heart nut things like the pecan things like the english walnut things like butternut these and the japanese and the chinese chestnut and thin shelled large easy to crack black walnuts and hick hands so the nut bug got me because i learned from a friend of mine in pennsylvania dale hendricks that there was this guy john hershey who had a nursery about seventy years ago And in fact, started the nursery from the Quaker meeting house that I had attended as a kid growing up in Pennsylvania, in Downingtown, Pennsylvania. And John Hershey had planted a bunch of specimen examples there of hick hands, persimmons, bortnut, heartnut, chestnut. And we walked around this apartment complex and parking lot for a bank and looked at all these vestiges of his research and development in superior varieties of persimmons, grafted nut trees. We then hopped in our cars in the good fashion of the Northeast and drove over the landscape about eight miles away to a town called Guthriesville. And there we walked, oh I'd say there we've got more like at least 30 acres plus, probably more like 60 Of a nursery where he planted out a much more extensive example. Areas of honey locusts where one side of the road the honey locusts get pods on them one year. And the other side of the road the honey locusts get pods on them the other year. So they have even year pod development and odd year development. He knew which ones were which and had planted out whole patches that alternated when they bore pods. Uh, He had and still has and are still there. Pecans, huge... Japanese, Chinese chestnuts, whole rows of hundreds of trees of selected varieties of large acorns for, I think, more aptly feeding pigs. For feeding people, I'm excited about all the former that I've been talking about, the pecan, the hickan, the bortnut. These are all easy to eat, easy to crack, super high butter fat. So I've been reading up on this stuff, and the reading I'm going to share with you from uh, a book called The Pecan A History of America's Native Nut. The author of this is James McWilliams. And the section I wanted to read to you I found particularly striking in its, again, Highlighting this rapidity with which ecosystems go from being abundant, lush, uh, very thoughtfully and extensively and intentionally managed by tribal cultures, village cultures, often with intentional burns, keeping a lot of things like blight and fungus at bay. Right? So, Let's start to put together a whole picture of what creates healthy, robust ecosystems and why am I inclined to offhandedly, it seems, many times, I think, to audiences and clients and students, that we live in what I would call a paltry semblance of the landscape that used to be here just 500 years ago. We have a hammered, beat-down, fragmented ecosystem that is little vestige postage stamps of what it was that used to be here and these postage stamps have a lot of edge too much edge so much edge that they're very vulnerable to disease die off the further decay and breakdown of the ecosystem because mother earth is willing to just go back to a blank slate as far as biodiversity in order to build up a truly adapted assemblage of life forms to this geography in its response to human mismanagement in terms of our well-being and longevity in this landscape we have mismanaged it the cycles of nature are longer slower and forgiving and she will heal we will not weather the storm of how she goes about healing you can be sure of that and the point is to say we need to take control of our destiny by being responsible caring humans and rebuilding the ecological health of these landscapes reconnecting the postage stamps and I'm focusing on this in the local landscape here in Ulster County in the riparian zone anywhere you're next to a river I'm part of a group called the Rondout Watershed Alliance and that's because the Rondout River is the main drainage here, needs advocacy, and is a rich opportunity for us to reforest the landscape with these polyculture perennial nut tree assemblages, as well as fruit trees, as well as acorns selected for grazing heritage breeds of pigs under them, so we can restore an ecosystem and create an agricultural economy that's founded more on diverse polyculture tree crops that are playing an ecological function as well. And that's a quick thumbnail sketch of a vision that I certainly have referred to in these podcasts before and will refer to again because it is the overarching umbrella idea of how this all comes together. Back to the book reading here. The Pecan, A History of America's Native Nut. James McWilliams. It's a fairly recent book. I think we're looking at it's University of Texas Press 2013 really appreciate his characterization of ecosystem change and how it created challenges for the quality of the nut and in particular we're going to explore in just a couple pages here Uh, the history of the weevil and its impact on the pecan. The perpetual dance between animal and plant is often called mutualism. Before the emergence of this mutualism, eras and eras ago, the pecan tree needed the wind to move its winged nutlets from one region to another. Pecan trees, in other words, did not always have big edible seeds. As squirrels became squirrels and crows became crows, winged nutlets became wingless nuts, the mutualism that co-evolved remains evident to anyone who, like Betacek or Gilbert White, spends quality time observing the many melodramas that unfold under a tree. Not to get too far ahead of the story, but when one observes how commercial pecan orchards work today, it becomes perfectly clear that the farmer's goal, when you get right down to it, is to exchange mutualism for botanical dominance. In a sense, the Indians established the starting point from which this ambitious and potentially devastating process of domination would proceed. Before humans, though, it was all about the wind, birds, squirrels, and of course the vagaries of evolutionary change. When it came to pecan access, Indians also benefited from ecological factors beyond their control. That's our focus here. Much less recognition, factors that we can appreciate only from the perch of the present. A potential predator of pecan nuts, one that, as we will later see, would threaten to devastate cultivated pecan orchards throughout the southeast and the southwest, was the pecan weevil. The Indians, however, had no need to fear the pecan weevil because it and other potential insect predators were effectively controlled by the red-headed woodpecker, which at the time thrived in numbers high enough to keep the weevil in balance. Critical. This is why fragmented ecosystems lead to imbalances in insect populations, disease, disease, weed populations, die-off vectors. The redhead, one ornithologist wrote in the 1920s, is very fond of insects, and so it was throughout pecan territory. By the 19th century, though, with the systematic harvesting of snags, fallen timber, redheaded woodpeckers, which relied on the snags as a primary food source, diminished in number, providing a small but critical birth for the weevil. As is true of most invasive insects, the weevil did not need much of a chance to proliferate to invasive proportions. But for the pre-contact Indians, natural control kept the weevil and other like-minded insect predators in balance. Let me read that last sentence once more because it's a critical one. But for pre-contact Indians, natural control kept the weevil and other like-minded insect predators in balance. Another pecan predator that had yet to arrive in significant numbers was the raccoon. Today raccoons pursue urban and suburban garbage as their primary source of food. This however is a relatively recent dietary change Writing about raccoons in southern Illinois in the 1940s, one wildlife biologist noted, pecan nuts undoubtedly contribute much to the excellent condition of raccoons, suggesting that raccoons had always been a fierce competitor for pecans. In pre-contact North America, however, that was not the case. Raccoons would not have been prevalent if existent at all in regions where the pecan grew. The reason is that the expansion of European-style agriculture plus later urbanization was the primary factor that eventually drove the raccoon out of the far southeastern corner of the United States and into trash cans across the Northern Hemisphere. In pre-contact days, though, raccoons would have known no pecans for the simple reason that they did not share space with native pecan groves. So very interesting, just to highlight that. Raccoons in pre-contact North America only existed in the far southeastern corner of the United States. It was only from European contact and the fragmenting and destroying of habitat and ecosystem that the raccoon then migrated to the habitats where we are familiar with it today. Back to our reading here, another imbalance that occurred as the ecosystems changed. One shouldn't overlook the wood rat as a pecan predator. This rodent, which would become an especially vigorous competitor for pecans in the Brazos Valley, was also not yet a factor for the Indians. Its number was similarly monitored by natural control, specifically the abundance of hawks, owls, and rat snakes that prevailed before aggressive deforestation and agricultural development. Its decline, which seems to have begun in the late 19th century, led to a situation in which, according to one early 20th century wildlife biologist, native rats and mice have so increased their numbers that their depredations have assumed almost the proportions of a plague. Again, this is a relatively recent development, one that would not have impinged upon Indian access to their native nuts. Rats, raccoons, weevils... Plus, dozens of other species would go on to compete for pecans in groves throughout North America. When Native Americans were eating pecans before European arrival, however, these animals were too involved in other ecological relationships to bother much with pecans. Right? Too involved in other ecological relationships to bother with pecans so I think that sums up why a healthy ecosystem is our best preventative tool for ill health or imbalances in our farm cultivated food systems farming needs to happen in the context of healthy ecosystems so that our farms are healthy because they are the best fallback for overall support systems, healthy wild ecologies that we live and garden in the midst of. Now my last reading is from my favorite author on moral perspectives about Violence, You know, I mean, really underlying this theme of ecosystem change is destruction, violence in the forms of the industrial machine that then became the industrial war machine and went to war against nature, as Bill Mollison calls it. And it's this war against nature that permaculture is responding to and turning around the war machine. And dismantling it and rebuilding a culture that is based on a positive relationship with our fellow human beings and with the rich biological heritage that we have on this planet and i look to vonnegut as one of the great voices for the 20th century in understanding this tendency towards violence and giving a little bit of levity as well as unapologetic clarity. And so I'm going to wrap up with this reading that's really looking at uh, violence and guns in particular and some of the issues we have psychologically, rhetorically and with propaganda machine in the United States around the gun issue. The first story of mine which got into trouble with the sincerely Christian far right was about time travelers who went back to Bible times and discovered that Jesus Christ was 5 feet 2 inches tall. I think I liked Jesus more than the stories naysayers did since I was asserting that I didn't care how tall or short he was. Bernard V. O'Hare was also short, but not nearly that short and was still the most effective and humane criminal lawyer in the recent history of Northampton County, Pennsylvania. He was very much a local hero. I, his old war buddy, was the only non-family mourner from out of state at his funeral. The free speech provisions of the First Amendment guarantee all of us not only benefits, but pain. As the physical fitness experts tell us, no pain, no gain... Much of what other Americans say or publish hurts me a lot. Makes me want to throw up. Tough luck for me. When Charlton Heston, a movie actor who once played Jesus with shaved armpits, tells me in TV commercials, public service announcements, about all the good work the National Rifle Association, to which Father and I both belonged when I was a kid, is doing, And how glad I should be that civilians can and do keep military weapons in their homes or vehicles or places of work. I feel, exactly, as though he were praising the germs of some loathsome disease. Since guns in civilian hands, whether accidentally or on purpose, kill so many of us day after day. When I graduated from school number 43 in Indianapolis, each member of our class had to make a public promise as to what he or she would try to do when an adult to make the world a better place. I was going to find a cure for some disease. Well, I sure don't need an electron microscope to identify an AK-47 or an Uzi. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, saith Article 2 of the Bill of Rights. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Perfect! I wouldn't change a word of it. I only wish the NRA and its jellyfishy well-paid supporters and legislatures, both state and federal, would be careful to recite the whole of it, and then tell us how a heavily armed man, woman, or child, recruited by no official, led by no official, given no goals by any official, motivated or restrained only by his or her personality and perceptions of what is going on can be considered a member of a well-regulated militia. To cut a Gordian knot here, I think a sick fantasy is at work of a sort of Armageddon in which the bad people, poor, dark-skinned, illiterate, lazy, and drug-crazed will one night attack The need homes of the good white people who have worked hard for all they have and have in addition given money and time to charity. I used to be very good with guns. Was maybe the best shot in my company when I was a PFC. But I wouldn't have one of the motherfuckers in my house for anything. I consider the discharge of firearms a low form of sport. Modern weapons are as easy to operate as cigarette lighters. Ask any woman who never worked one before, who went to the local gun shop and joined the NRA's idea of a well-regulated militia, and then made Swiss cheese out of a faithless lover or mate. Whenever I hear of somebody that he is a good shot, I think to myself, that is like saying he is a good man with a Zippo or Bic, some athlete. George Bush, like Charlton Heston, is a lifetime member of the NRA. I am even more offended, though, by his failure to take notice of the most beautiful, noble, and brilliant, and poetical, and sacred accomplishment by Americans to date. I am speaking about the exploration of the solar system by the camera-bearing space probe Voyager 2. This gallant bird, so like Noah's dove, showed us all the outer planets and their moons. We no longer had to guess whether there was life on them or not, or whether our descendants might survive on them. Forget it. As Voyager 2 departed the solar system forever, my work is done, sending us dimmer and dimmer pictures of what we were and where we were. Did our president invite us to love it and thank it and wish it well? No. He spoke passionately instead of the necessity of an amendment to the Constitution, Article 27. Outlawing irreverent treatment of a piece of cloth, the American flag. Such an amendment would be on a nutty par with the Roman Emperor Caligula's having his horse declared a consul. I worry a lot about what they teach at Yale. And I'm going to wrap up there for today's podcast with you. I think you can appreciate why I look to Vonnegut to take us on what I would certainly call an unapologetic romp through the exploration of moral implications of the western age and our mindset that is the dominant paradigm of imperialism globally that needs to take its boot off of the neck of the world's poor and downtrodden and begin to raise up everybody around the planet collectively not just a few hoarders that we let run the war machine of the united states so let's take back this country let's take back our power and let's rebuild a way of living that's by the people for the people and perhaps never existed in the history of the earth on the scale and at the global level that we will be manifesting it together thank you for listening thanks for your energy to care about understanding the deeper rhythms of life and our relationships here and I look forward to hearing from you collaborating with you and continuing to share with you these readings and my insights and thoughts about life on earth today be well